baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. It's 10.08. You're listening to Still Talking on News Talk 830 WCCO Radio, your good neighbor station. I tell you what, if you have not done so, please go and get that Odyssey app so that you can go back and listen to my conversation with Farrah. He is a young man who videotaped the Minneapolis police officer's encounter with Mr. Troy Lee Billups at the Aldi last week that has gone viral. Uh, He did not talk to anybody else. Uh, He was slated and scheduled to speak with me on uh, ShalettaMakesMeLaugh.com, my uh, podcasting platform, because he only wanted to talk to uh, black media where he felt um, that he could tell his story and talk to someone that he trusted. Um, I convinced him to come on over and talk to us on the Good Neighbor Station. And um, he describes what happened, what he saw, what it felt like, and, um, you know, what what happened after the video stopped rolling. You've got to listen to it. Um, I don't know about you, but when I saw it, I thought, Lord have mercy. I hope I'm not about to watch another man die at the hands of Minneapolis police on a cell phone video. And the one thing that um, inspired me and empowered me and made me know, let me know that there's hope for the future is the the young white woman. She's the next person I'm going to go find. Um, who was in that video, who stood in the gap and became an advocate for Mr. Billups, an elder in our community, who was being tossed all over the floor by police. And she was using her privilege and her power to speak up and speak out. And it made me think about Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, I needed some ice cream to eat after seeing that video because I I either needed to eat ice cream or shop. But it made me think about a story that my ex-husband, Sean, sent me and said, you've got to find a way to talk about this on your radio show. Ben and Jerry's came out with an opinion piece in USA Today. And they said, we white people, this is a title, we white people need to use our power to fight police abuse some of us claim to be neutral but the reality is that neutrality preserves the status quo and in this opinion piece that ben and jerry's um put in usa today it says when police abuse black people it's not a black problem it's a white problem while black people bear the brunt of police brutality it is the white people who allow this racism to continue and they go on in this in this USA Today column to list out uh, the police abuses against black men, especially in Euclid, Ohio, in Ocean City, Maryland, in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And of course, George Floyd right here in Minneapolis. Um, and, and they talk about despite spending 
$1.5 billion per year to influence Congress. Uh, they didn't pass uh, and they didn't make a police reform a priority. And they talked about Congress failing. Congress failing George Floyd. Congress failing black people. And and I thought, this is great. I, I love this. But I'm, I'm looking at it from the perspective of an African-American woman who is excited to have an ally like a Ben and Jerry's to use their voice, to use their platform, to buy out an opinion column in USA Today um, and and make their voice heard and speak up and speak out so that my sons won't be victims of um, a police shooting. Right. And, and then I was like, wow, this is great. And Sean was like, yeah, we got to change our ice cream. Uh, no more bluebell for us. We we eat bluebell. Whenever we go down south, we get bluebell. We fill up the RV with it and we bring it back. Uh, whenever friends and relatives from down south come to visit, we have them bring bluebell. I've been begging Hy-Vee to get bluebell in the store so I don't have to import it from down south and lose the integrity of it a little bit. And and now we're we're all out. We're all Ben and Jerry's. Everybody can't be happy about that. And and what does it mean to that segment of the population who take offense? So I had to ask my friend Christy Peel, uh, the owner of Media Minefield, a public relations company right here in the Twin Cities, to join me on Still Talking to help me uh, understand this. Because I like while I'm like all excited, Christy, everybody ain't too happy about that. What does this mean for the brand Ben and Jerry's? What does it mean for their company when they isolate and alienate an entire um, segment of people who would normally buy their products and now they're pissed off? Shaletta, it's so good to talk to you, as as always. You know, this is on brand for Ben & Jerry's. Ben & Jerry's is no stranger to making political statements, to using their voice and their platform to bring awareness to an issue. The fact that right now we're talking about Ben & Jerry's and you're considering switching your brand loyalty means that they know who their audience is and they aren't afraid to use their voice. Is it risky? Yes, it's risky. Is it on brand for them? It absolutely is. But but they're losing. They're gonna lose some money. Don't we care about money? They don't care about money. I don't, but look, you're gonna buy it now, so yeah. they're getting money from you. I I, I do believe. I mean, I, you know, I'm an optimist. I and I'm a little Pollyanna when it comes to. I believe that many of these brands that have made moves since George Floyd are doing it out because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Is there financial motivation? Certainly there is. But I believe that the brands that are leading this and, and using, you said it earlier, the power and the privilege that comes with being a wealthy white owner means that you have a responsibility. And some brands are using it to stand up for what they believe in, and others are staying silent. Is is what Ben and Jerry's doing putting pressure on other companies to speak up and speak out? I mean, girl, they make ice cream. When you think about it, you don't expect the ice cream dudes to be, you know, taking this kind of stand. You expect the ice cream dudes to just keep making ice cream. Ben and Jerry's has found a way to really understand their audience and understand that their audience doesn't mind their boldness. 
They've made these kind of moves when it comes to politics. Other brands are doing it related to climate change. Brands in the last, you know, several years have become more bold. And I think it's about understanding who their audience is. And if you have a really great product, some people, frankly, Shaletta, they don't care. They're, they're not mm. going to read USA Today. They're not going to pay attention to what the political stance or the opinion piece. They just want some good ice cream. Now, Girl, okay. I, right? I mean, some people aren't paying attention. But I will say that in general, the way that the world has shifted in, in my world and what we do at Media Minefield is more brands and leaders are realizing the power that they do have and that they can influence opinion and that they can make a difference and that if not them, who is going to stand up and say things? Are, are companies just more aware that we're more aware? You know, it used to be that you couldn't find out who was on a board. Now that's something you can Google. It would be that you didn't know what a company stand on diversity and inclusion was. And now that's on their web page and there's a, a tab for that. And you can go and read it and see the work that they are doing. Um, is it because of transparency and, and the fact that we're more educated consumers? This is kind of changing the way this goes. You know, yes. I also think social media has made a big shift. We mm. have a, a positive online presence part of the business where we're handling the social media reputation, online reputation for executives and leaders because consumers now, they want to know. Potential employees want to know, who am I working for? What do they stand for? What kind of beliefs do they have? What kind of core values do they have? Employees now, you know, people entering the job market, those people are digital natives. They have never Mm -hmm. not had a cell phone in their hand. And they're used to getting information fast. So if I'm going to buy Ben and Jerry's, I'm going to figure out who owns it and what they stand for. And there's a lot of consumers doing that. That's a new trend, Shaletta. That is not something that we saw five years ago. And it's fantastic, except a lot of executives haven't figured out that they better get their social media presence and the transparency factor counts a lot. And these businesses, you call it out a lot on your on Twitter, the businesses that have come forward and said, I'm going to help. I'm going to be an ally. I'm going to be an advocate. They said that 18 months ago, and they've done nothing. And mm-hmm. now we can, we can go back, we can Google that and say, hey, I don't know that I'm going to buy your product. I'm not going to support your business because you're not actually doing what you said. And that's brand inconsistency, which can damage a brand. Yeah. Now, this is the thing, too. Like, I remember um, back when Michael Jordan was hot and Nike was hot and everybody was buying the Jordans. And, you know, some of the complaint was Michael Jordan doesn't do anything in the black community. He um, does not support um, young kids. He's not doing, um, you know, his part. Uh, You know, this is a one way relationship. Um, He doesn't speak out um, about you know, social justice causes. And, and, you know, similarly to O.J. Simpson, when he was hot and popping, they used to, they wanted to get Jim Brown and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, courted O.J. Simpson to try and get him to um, fund and support and lend his voice to causes and social justice campaigns. And he didn't. Now, 
after George Floyd, here comes Michael Jordan with this, you know, $100 million campaign. And, you know, he's, you know, supporting social justice and, and, and causes of that such. And, you know, but Ben and Jerry's has, has just kind of been doing it all along. Is social media the reason for the pressure? It certainly is a part of it. Consumers are different than what Michael Jordan was, you know, buying Nike or out there with his Nikes. And even there's been a documentary about Michael Jordan. A lot of the stuff Michael Jordan was doing, we didn't know about. Girl, we did not. Right? We had no idea. And because everyone has a camera at all times, no one really has a private life anymore. And I think that people who are in the public spotlight and have a voice have realized I have a voice. It's up to me to decide what to do with it. And I can use my power for good or I can use my power to stay silent, which ultimately no comment is a comment. And when brands aren't or celebrities or influencers aren't making statements, and I don't mean political statements. I just mean if you're not out there realizing the kind of voice and power that you have, mm-hmm. you're you're basic. If you stay silent, you're basically supporting the other side, right? Yeah, yeah. So you got to say something, and and I think that's where companies found themselves in a pickle after George Floyd died. Like you know, one company did something, and then the next company was like, "Well, we got to say something," and everybody was looking like, "Okay, who's next?" Somebody, y'all better say something. And so everybody was kind of saying what they were gonna do and saying what their purpose was, and you know, hiring DEI people by the truckload and dropping them off at companies all across the country. And now people are coming back looking for receipts. Like, okay, you said you were going to do this. What are you doing? Okay, you you promised you were going to make this change. You know, where is it? And I just, you know, I just think that, and, and I'm appreciative of the fact that consumers are now so much more educated than they were um, even two or three years ago. You're exactly right. And I, the days after George Floyd, we were on the phone. I mean, uh, we have 150 clients. Everyone was in crisis mode because every brand had to make a decision. What, what am I going to do? And we saw a lot of brands making a lot of mistakes. And I think it's critical. The time to decide where you're going to stand on something and what your message is, is not in the middle of a crisis. Brands need to decide far in advance. How, how far are we going to go in political issues? How far into the waters are we going to go on some of these advocacy issues? You don't decide that suddenly you're going to be for something that you've never been for against. Uh, mm-hmm. Some companies are we're in a position to go pretty aggressive. Some companies were in a position where our best advice to them was to say our our thoughts and prayers are with the George Floyd family or with Minneapolis. That that's as far as they could go without being inauthentic. And mm-hmm. many many business owners had to look internally. And the answer is not go hire a DEI person because the work to change culture is not the job of one person. Should you do that? Absolutely, you should do that. But that has to be backed up with a real commitment to change or nothing is going to change except you've, you're, you've hired someone who basically can get nothing done because you're not supporting their efforts. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing you see it so much because, um, you know, folks are like, Oh, well, we got this new DEI person. Okay. Well, what are they doing? They're writing blog posts and, um, they're sending out company newsletters, but you don't see any real change. And I think people are hip to that. They're educated and they're calling it out. Okay. I know you got to go. It's late. I appreciate you being here. You know, I love you. 
Oh, Shalette, it's always wonderful to talk to you. There's very few people that would call me and say, hey, will you want to talk about race with me? And I'd say, sure, I trust you. We can have a conversation. You know, I love you. Glad to glad to see you're doing well. And at 10 o'clock at night. Okay, that's the whole that's a whole other another thing. Now, folks have been listening. I don't want to let you go before I tell people how they can reach you because um, what you do in strategies and public relations and media, um, you have decades of experience in this field on so many different levels, whether it is award winning um, journalists, um, you know, nationally and, and locally um, or entrepreneur. Uh, you just, Gary, you just do so much and you help so many companies get to that next level through your knowledge and expertise and through your team, um, Allison and, and all the folks over there. So tell folks how they can find you. Oh, you're sweet. It's an honor and privilege to do what I do with the most talented people I've ever worked with, except when I was working with you because you are a talent, my dear. Uh, Media Minefield, so media-minefield.com. My social media, Christy Peel, Peel spelled kind of weird. Uh, P-I-E-H-L. You can find me on social. Let's chat. Girl, that's it. There you go. You want to take your business to the next level. Christie's got you. Y'all stick around. Jonathan and I are chatting next. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It is 1027. You're listening to News Talk 830 WCCO Radio, your good neighbor station. That conversation, the one I just had with my friend Christy Peel, is brought to you by YMCA of the North. Because YMCA of the North is committed to having discussions on race, um, social justice, and equity. And Jonathan, you know, I, I just, I so appreciate Christy's perspective. Um, you know, I, I thought about that when Sean sent me that story. Uh, and said, you change your ice cream brand after you read this one. And I thought, oh, yeah, Ben and Jerry's, I'm all with it. But then I had to realize this is some people that's not going to like this. And, you know, how's that going to affect their bottom line and the fact that they stepped out there and said what they believed in? Um, you know, it just it just really, you know, struck a chord with me. Well, it's when you are in business, this is something that a lot of people, it's – it's one thing where maybe you don't care as much about a person's – a business owner or business leader's political stances or social issue stances. You just want them to do your dry cleaning uh, or provide mm-hmm. – I, should, I shouldn't say do it, but provide an outlet for your dry service, cleaning, your yeah. you know, your yeah. – your, social food outings or going to the bar or uh, getting those knickknacks you need for those holiday stockings. You don't want to know that particular item about the owners. Some people do like that. Some people don't. They Some people want to know, hey, are you helping out the black community, the gay community, the Asian community, the Hispanic community? Are you helping out 
uh, women? Are you helping advance women in the workforce? Other people just say, I just want my stuff and I don't care what you think and I don't want Mm. you to throw it in my face. And so I'll give you a perfect example of this. After the 2020 election and everything that happened Mm -hmm. this past year, especially in the spring and into the summer with some of these states passing different voting laws. And you had Coca-Cola and Delta becoming a little bit more vocal about what happened with the Georgia voting law bill that came into law. And you had people saying, you know, it's about time. You should have been on board with something like speaking out against this years Mm -hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. But there are other people that said, wait a minute, get your nose out of this business. You you got nothing to do with this. And why are you putting your nose in here and why are you putting your nose in speaking this way? It's it's that's the freedoms we we explore and we enjoy. That's yeah. the only thing I can say about it. Yeah, it, it it's a. I tell you what, it's just an interesting conversation. And when Sean sent me that note, he was like, "You go, you gonna start eating Ben and Jerry's now? You gonna change your ice cream?" So he's looking at a grocery list. I'm I'm seeing it as a, a segment idea. I'm seeing it as something to talk about, something to explore. And I'm I'm so glad Christy um, agreed to to hang out with me. Um, you know, so late in the evening on still talking to talk about it. She's an amazing perspective, and the way she's been able to build that company and build company brands uh, through Media Minefield, it's just been great to watch. You know, she started that company, um, got the idea in the church basement. I think at a Bible study. And now she's got employees and uh, a thriving and growing business. And it's just been, you know, as a friend, it's just been so amazing to sit back and watch um, her work and be an inspiration to other female entrepreneurs. All right. Stick around. We've got weather coming up and we're going to talk about how to be authentic and still get paid. No code switching when we come back. When the queen calls and says, Shaletta, put me on your show. I have something to say. You say, yes, ma'am. That is how it went down pretty much with Miss Relinda Watts. Uh, Relinda speaks and she is on the line speaking with me tonight on WCCO radio. Thank you for being with me. It is 1035 at night. That's love that you are staying up with me this late at night to talk on the radio. Now, it's one thing if I call you and we're in our pajamas and we're just hanging out, chatting like girlfriends, talking and shooting the breeze and giggling and we got our pajamas on. But it's another thing to sit up and think and talk on this radio. So I know there's a difference. I appreciate you being here. Of course. Always. Anytime. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Now, you said you wanted to talk about what? Yes. So um, this past weekend was the um, People of Color Conference, which is sponsored by the National Association of Independent Schools. And there are many uh, independent schools in your area and across the country. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I've been researching and talking a lot about is this idea of the Blacksidus. And that is when Black teachers can't deal anymore with the racism and the microaggressions that they experience daily 
that they end up leaving their institutions. And we know already across the country there is a shortage of teachers in general, but in particular, right, we know that there's a disparity when it comes to black educators. And so I really open this conversation about why that's happening and the idea of black fatigue, that really um, there's just so much going on that teachers are saying, hey, like, I can't do this anymore because the exhaustion and just the extra weight that comes with having to be black and wanting to show up as your authentic self um, in a predominantly white space um, brings on um, a myriad of challenges and um, enough is enough. Okay. So, and I know the teachers are done. I mean, they are exhausted. I have sat in on Zoom meetings with my children just to make sure that my kids are keeping up and they've got the face in the little square and the muting when they're supposed to mute and unmuting when they're supposed to unmute. And what these teachers are doing, turning into IT professionals, keeping the kids engaged, um, learning new strategies and techniques uh, to teach children virtually is just uh, amazing, right? Mm-hmm. But when you throw the element of uh, microaggression and racism and that stressor um, teachers are saying that's it. And and we already don't have very many African-American, especially male teachers in the classroom. I just had black men speak on my radio show last Saturday. They just got a grant to try to recruit more Mm -hmm. teachers. You know, how did you notice um, in in your um, background and and immersing yourself um, in this, you know, educational setting that this was a problem and it needed to be addressed? Well, you know, it's coming out of this idea of, you know, the racial reckoning that we experienced in the summer of 2020 and, you know, corporations, businesses and schools, right, all committed, you know, to doing better, committed to Um, wanting to be, um, you know, anti-racist and really trying to deal, you know, with some of the pervasive anti-blackness that exists within the institution. Um, However, a lot of those promises fell short. And a lot of those promises just were at the surface of, well, if we have more, right, if we try to recruit more, then that's going to solve our diversity problem. But the thing is, is that if you don't think about retention, if you don't think about the culture of the school, right, where somebody cannot merely just survive, but how they can thrive, you actually are doing more harm than good. And so that's what's happening because still these institutions are still overwhelmingly, you know, white and that's who these institutions were created for. So it's actually, you know, a false start in trying to just look at the representation alone of your teaching faculty. You actually have to do some deeper work to think about the culture of the school and, and what kind of culture are you cultivating um, where everybody can show up as their authentic selves. And so we've really just seen, you know, from the research um, that actually it's in many ways, even more of a microscope on some of these teachers because the idea was like, oh, if we get them, okay, we're done, right? We can just check the box off and we've done our diversity work. But actually these teachers are under a microscope and they're really expected to actually, you know, do more than what their responsibilities are in the classroom. You know, they are expected to be the spokesperson, right, on race. That a DEI, right. They're, they're supposed yes. to math teach, and all of a sudden they're doing DEI. It's like, what the hell? I just want to hey. teach the kids how to carry the one and use the greater than, less than, or equal to symbol. How am I the DEI person? 
Absolutely. And so that's, again, that false start of you have this unrealistic expectation, right, of these teachers who already are taxed, but then also they have to deal with the racism and the microaggressions and the other discriminatory behavior, you know, that they experience. And the thing is, is that people sometimes think that it has to be something that is so, you know, overt, but really it's these small, like, little things of just even having to prove, you know, that you belong. One of the the um, research participants shared, you know, that when they first started on the, at their school, you know, someone said, oh, you're the diversity hire. And so already oh. just, you know, not giving them, you know, the respect, you know, for the expertise and the experience, right, that they bring, but just this assumption of, oh, you're only here because, you know, we needed to, you know, do some work in this area. And so it's things like that, that from the beginning of one's journey, I mean, already the culture is sharing with them, right, how they're valued, how they're seen, how they're heard. And so there's just some real work to do, you know, in this area. Okay, so folks are like, okay, so Relinda Watts, I don't know her. She is an expert, author, consultant, educator, speaker, practitioner, storyteller, podcaster, Columbia University. Um, and, and you, um, you know, have been in this field, you are doing this work, you are doing this research. And um, what you are finding um, is, for me, is troubling, because if this is what the teachers are seeing um, in the classroom, and they're leaving, then Rolinda, how do we bring uh, more African-American teachers. How does black men teach, do their job uh, in recruiting more if we can't keep the ones we got? Absolutely. Well, I think it starts from, you know, the schools. If they are saying that they, one, they have to understand that black teachers, you know, really you brought up black male teachers, bring value to their school community. Like, and that is real. And so I think if schools can first start to think of from that level of we know that this is a perspective and an experience that we don't have a part of our community, what can we do really to attract that? But then also, what are we going to do to ensure that someone stays? And so sometimes it takes years to cultivate those relationships. And, and for, for as many years that they were void of that voice and that perspective, it's going to take some time to actually get that perspective because there's a lot of distrust, right? And rightfully so. But I think it's identifying that this is a perspective and an experience that we know that we need. And so how are we going to really build those relationships to where someone will say, wow, I want to work here. But then is that school then saying, yes, we want you here and we want you to be your full self. We want you to show up authentically. So let's talk about other policies, you know, regarding hair, where right away that takes black teachers out, you know, if that's um, one of those underlining, you know, policies that, you know, show up where someone is critiquing, you know, how you um, come to work groomed. And so I think even something like that, we need to talk about it. And and we know that this happens to children, right, where children get sent home for having their hair in braids, et cetera, and otherwise. So what does that look like for the adults that you want Girl. to step into your community? Girl, it's right. just, yeah, yeah. And and I got a girlfriend. She has been an elementary school counselor for 25 years. And, and so I see it in her, the struggle every day to do it um, with a smile. 
And, you know, and she is not one to speak up and speak out. And it's taking a toll on her body. It's taking a toll mm-hmm. on her relationship with her husband and her children. It's taking a toll um, on her health and, and her her mental as well as physical health. And, and so for the teachers who are there, how are they dealing with it? Right, right. Well, you know, there was some research that just came out where it talked about, you know, black women in particular and if their preference when it was time to return, what their preference was, was to return to the office, uh, the school, right, or to do it from home. And guess what? The research shows that their preference was to stay at home because the things that they had to deal with day in and day out when they show up to the office, when they show up to the school, Right. Those are things that, you know, on Zoom, you don't have to navigate in the same ways. And so I think that that is is very telling. And I think that school leaders, you know, industry leaders really need to think about that of like, why would people say, wow, I feel more comfortable when I can be on this screen? Because what I have to endure when I step into a space it's far worse. It's far more damaging. And so I think that, you know, folks need to pause and really think about, like, well, the why and then really try to, you know, strip away at those things. And I think that, you know, until we can get better, you know, working conditions in the sense of, again, where people feel that they can show up as their authentic selves, we're going to continue to struggle, you know, with this issue. And it can't be just lip service, right, around Mm -hmm. we we promise to do better. Well, where's the action? And how are you going to hold yourselves accountable? And then I think that that trickles over to who's in leadership, right? Because you can have, you know, black teachers, but where are the black administrators? Right. Like it, it, it's it's on so many levels. And so I think that it's a, a, a larger, you know, puzzle of sorts, you know, to put together, but really ensuring that your environment is a place where folks would actually want to come and work. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that there's that 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 missing element. Like, why would somebody want to come and work here? What what do we offer? Are we going to ensure, you know, that they they don't have to deal with this in, in, you know, our school community? Because I can tell you, if, if you know the teachers are feeling it and they're experiencing it, the students are the very kids. perceptive. Yeah. And they pick up on, wow, this is how my teachers, my black teachers are navigating this space. That definitely has a domino and a ripple effect on how those students are also navigating it. And in many instances, the student experience and the teacher experience are mirroring each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the kids don't don't have the, the, the wherewithal to try to figure out how to do that. And so exactly. then we'll see them act out or we'll see them not wanting to go to school and we won't know why. And it's because they're experiencing um, this microaggression. Now, okay, so people are hearing you. They're hearing what you're saying. And they, uh, I know you do conferences across the country, whether it is virtual or in person. And I know you have so much information um, that you share with um, educators and with schools, whether it is colleges and universities, it is public and or private schools, to try to help them make these spaces better for uh, teachers who are from communities of color so that not only they can do their jobs effectively, but they can stay there 
and help children in the classroom, regardless of what color they are? How can folks get in touch with you? How can they find you so that if they need this work done, and, and they all do, we're going to say if they need, because they need this work done. I'm going to change the if, because they need this work done. Um, how can they reach out to you to get the materials um, to find out what your research says and, and to change the culture? Absolutely. Thank you. I'd love to share. So they can definitely reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, at Rolinda Watts, at Rolinda Speaks. Um, the website is RolindaSpeaks.com. Um, there's a host of information there and then ways to be able to get in touch with me. But, yeah, I've been working with a lot of um, a lot of folks that say, hey, let, let's try to, you know, be in conversation with each other to really think about how we can build equitable spaces. And just to your point, you know, when you have black teachers in your space, um, really all of the students thrive because diversity and specifically racial diversity, it is um, linked to academic excellence. And mm-hmm. so we really have to, that's my message, right, to really um, help people understand is that this is not a zero-sum game. We all win. We all yeah. win when everybody gets to come to that school community and feels like they can show up as their authentic self. And we don't want kids to just survive. We want them to thrive. And the only yes. way that we can get them to thrive is that everybody's got to be at that table. And we all have to say that we deserve, right, to win. And this is how yeah. we got to do it. Well, I am so glad you took the time to share this uh, with us tonight on Still Talking. Um, I know that you're going to be hit up and I'm going to be sending you all the people who DM'd and tweeted and uh, inst- uh, uh, texted me tonight because I'm like, look, I don't know nothing about this stuff. That's Relinda's thing. I just talk. She is the one. So uh, I expect you to hear from uh, them and they to hear from you. And I just appreciate the work that you're doing and um, bringing this to light. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and thank you for all the work you do and keeping these conversations going. That's how we're going to do it. So thank you, and, and thanks, everybody. Yeah, and we have to thank the YMCA of the North because uh, they sponsor conversations like this here on News Talk 830 WCCO Radio, conversations on racial equity, social justice, uh, and change. We'll be right back. Jonathan, you got to tell me about this because I know you are excited. We've got twins greats uh, going to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Give me the scoop. So this is a big, big, big story. Uh, it's going to be a big story for the next few months. It, the Veterans Committee today decided to vote in and write in Tony Oliva and Jim Cott into the Baseball Hall of Fame. They are now elected and will be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame coming up uh, at the next ceremony in 2022. This is this is big time news uh, that a lot of people across the area are going to really love, and Twins fans and Twins fans that especially remember the teams from the 60s and 70s. Those teams that were really good. A few of them went to the World Series. A couple of them went to the World Series. Um, they're going to remember. Tony Oliva and Jim Cobb with a lot of fondness, and people have been clamoring for two these two especially to get into the Hall of Fame for years now. The fact that they are be, being voted in by the Veterans Committee, it's a welcome thing to hear. It's fantastic. 
And I saw the pictures um, and the phone call and the wife kissing him. Everybody was just so excited, weren't they? Tony Oliva, yeah. You're talking specifically about Tony Oliva. It looks like there were uh, cameras that were picking up the Mm -hmm. shooting video of him reacting to getting the call. And it's for these athletes, this is something that when you're a kid – It'd be great. You know, you'd, you'd want to say that, oh, I always knew I was going to make the Hall of Fame. I always knew this. I always knew that. You never know what's going to happen in your career when you mm-hmm. get to high school, when you get to, if you're lucky enough, to get that scholarship to college to play or play at a high level, if you're even luckier than that, to get to the pros and have a sustained career, have a sustained successful career with – no injuries, no long initiated slumps or or yips that you have to retrain yourself to to get better at. This is the top of the top. And so when these athletes get this call, I'd say for most of them about 99%. There are, I mean there are people that know know they're going to get the call, mm-hmm. but it's still a surprise, it's still an honor, it's still a humbling yeah. experience no matter uh when you get it, who gets it, you know, whether you know you're going to get it or not. But, again, for Cotton, for Oliva, they've been waiting for decades for this. Why does it take so long? That's what I don't understand. It all do, it, it's, it's all up to the writers. Um, the writers are usually the ones that vote in the Hall of Famers. And it's, I don't know whether it's based on biases or media, you know, how the – the players treated the media when they were playing or just the numbers, just everything is, it's not objective when you talk about the numbers of sports, because there are different eras of sports. The segregated era of baseball is different than, you know, post 1947. There's a lot of talk about the steroid era of baseball and whether Mm. we should really let any of these people that have been closely linked to or have known to done steroids into the Hall of Fame in baseball specifically. So mm-hmm. it's not apples to apples all the time when you're talking about the numbers and what those represent. Wow. Well, I was just excited for them, seeing um, the excitement on on Tony's face and, you know, his wife kissing him and the cameras were there. I was like, what is going on? It was like all of a sudden the timelines on all the social media profiles were flooded with those images and everybody was saying congratulations. And it was just so exciting. Okay, where's the ceremony? Is there going to be a party? Is there going to be a parade? What's I mean, what's the next step? Is, I mean, are we are we? So the, I believe this, uh, the ceremony is usually in, um, I believe, July. I'll have to look okay. that up, but I believe it's usually it's usually in July. It's usually in the summer uh, mm-hmm. of that next year. So it'll be in 2022, the summer 2022 in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, make sure you get your cars all revved up or your, fli- or your tickets and flights all secured and go out to Cooperstown. Oh, that's going to be fun. And it's always fun to go to Cooperstown anyway. It's fun hanging out with you, Jonathan. Thank you so much. I love you. Hello. Hello. He never tells me back. I love you guys. Thank you for being here and having me uh, on Gerland's show. You have an amazing night and a wonderful week ahead. God bless you. 
baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.